Hello, I am Mariam Sham, founder of I Am The Code. Welcome to the I Am The Code podcast. We are so grateful. I can't say this enough. We are so grateful to have you with us, listening to the podcast, sharing it. I'm just so overwhelmingly grateful. Thank you so much for being here. You know, each time you support I Am The Code, you are elevating young women and girls globally. So thank you for being here. Thank you for your donation, your kindness, your love, and your support. It means so much to all of us and to the girls in Kakumo Refugee Camp. I'm very sad this week because my heart goes to Nigeria. I love Nigeria. I love the people of Nigeria. And I was so sad to see people losing their lives on the street. We must learn to love our people. As we celebrate the United Nations Day this week, I'm often reminded that institutions and government must change and adapt to reality. They need to do what is right for their people. All the systems must change so we can have a fair society for all, not just for the few. We must move away from the statu quo and the business as usual attitude. That's why this week I invited my friend and brother, John McCartan. He knows how to create and implement big ideas. It is a real joy and pleasure to welcome John Makato on the podcast. He's a senior fellow and director of the new Center for Sustainable Development at the Brookings Institution. The center is being launched today, October 21st, and I'm so proud that he's leading it because I know he's going to make a difference. John is also a senior advisor of the UN Foundation. He serves as a member of the UNICEF Advisory Group. In 2018, he co-founded the 17 Rooms Initiative, a new approach to catalyze action for sustainable development. He's extremely humble, really humble guy, and served as a manager, then deputy director of the UN Millennium Project. John has supported so many leaders across the world, including the late Gofinan, the UN Secretary General, and he has worked behind the scenes to make a difference. John and I got to know each other from Yale University as young global leaders from the World Economic Forum. We formed a friendship, an amazing friendship, based on mutual respect, learning from each other and holding each other accountable. He convinced me that progress is possible, especially if you have the right people demanding for change. We need to demand change. I really hope you enjoy my conversation with John because I've learned so much. See you on the other side. Hi, John. How are you? Where are you now? I'm great. Uh, I'm in the west coast of North America. Delighted to be with you. Wow, amazing. I mean, I'm so happy to have you. You know, we had had so many people on the podcast and they've been asking me, where is John? Where is John Makato? I said, he's coming. Wait, wait. I've been waiting. I've been waiting. <laughs> he's coming. So we knew that we needed you on this week. So let me tell you why I invited you on the podcast. I think you did two things for me um, in my life and I will never, never forget about it. Um, I think the first time I met you was when we were at Yale together. And uh, I, I can't believe uh, what happened that day. You were so kind and compassionate, really loving person, respectful. You included me in conversations. Um, and I, I felt so safe next to you. It was really amazing. And, uh, and we become friends after that. Um, and I will never forget. You taught me so many things, uh, you know, to be calm, to, be, uh, to, to listen to people and, and just, just to show passion, but at the same time, just wait for my turn, basically. <laughs> I know you don't know you've done that, but you definitely did. And I think the second, the second uh, thing you did for me is, you know, when you, st- you know, we're talking about sustainable development goals in 2015, I know that you were involved, but you included me. You know, you wanted the marginalized communities. You understood my story. But at the same time, I think you understood my position of frustration and you included me uh, into the conversation of the Global Goals at the World Economic Forum. And I will never forget this. So this week is the United Nations 75th anniversary. And it's so timely that we have you on the podcast. And that's why I wanted to invite you for boys and girls growing up across the world to know who you are. But at the same same time, to just say thank you for everything you've done for me. So thank you for coming on the I Am The Code podcast and welcome. Well, thank you for having me. And I'm the one who should be thanking you for all you've given me over the years. I remember very clearly that first day that we met. And I, I've t- often told people about 
that day when we were sitting next to each other. And for those who are listening, I guess it was uh, like an executive education program that we were doing together. Uh-huh. And I remember we'd sat next to each other the whole day uh, and didn't know anything about each other. And I, I was pretty grumpy <laughs> for other reasons that day. And then I remember you got up and told a bit of your story and it just was the biggest reminder in the world. You, you just never know who you're sitting next to and all the magic that they bring to the world. Uh-huh. And uh, ever since then, I've been, you know, your student in terms of uh, thinking through how, well, learning about all the ways a person can just take on the biggest biggest challenges in their own life and the biggest challenges in the world. And uh, it's been such a treat to go along the journey with you and, and learn from you. So I'm, I'm honored to be with you today. So thank you. Oh, me too. You know, I think, I think that day, as you mentioned, when we were at Yale, I think everything you've done, uh, and you're a very humble person, you know, you don't like blowing your own trumpet, but we need to, we need to, we need to tell boys and girls that leaders sometimes just don't blow their own trumpets, they listen. And I think I was almost the, the testimony of your work, <laughs> you know, because everything you've been doing uh, for so long for big leaders, and you see me as Senegalese girl standing there, Say, you were saying that's exactly what I've been doing, <laughs> so I could feel that on your in your eyes, and uh, and that's why you know I love you so much. So thank you for coming again on the podcast. What was the last event you did before the pandemic? Then I think it was uh, a conference in February, late February, mm-hmm. called Goodness Matters. Oh wow! Uh, a company called Benevity uh, works with a lot of other companies on their corporate social responsibility, and they had me speak about the Sustainable Development Goals uh-huh. uh, at their conference. It was a beautiful day in Palm Springs, and I think it was the last time I <laughs> went anywhere for anything to do with work. Was it a nice event? It was phenomenal. I really enjoyed it. Again, it speaks to all these issues of there's so many people trying to do good work in so many parts of the world and so many communities around the world, and often. It's a matter of figuring out how to connect the dots uh, to help them elevate their work or give them a new framework that allows them to plug into things that other people are doing. So I find it uh, anytime I get a chance to go to a new community and see new people doing things that uh, are inspiring or really just inspiring either in their outcome or in their effort and what they're trying to do, it gives me energy. So I remember, I mean, that was just one particular event that happened to be the last one before the shutdown. Interestingly, I think my travel schedule in late March, early April Uh was crazy. And it was one of these things of going from one meeting to an airport to another meeting to an airport with like very little sleep in between. So if nothing else, uh, amidst the horrors and stresses of the pandemic, it at least uh, saved me a little bit of uh, airplane stress and a whole lot of uh, carbon emissions associated with it. <laughs> so there was probably some positive, although I would love to go to those meetings too, but uh, it, yeah, it you know, just put all of our lives on hold in so many ways. Uh, I know how you feel. And that the part of our life, those dimensions of our life, everything else, of course, is very much <laughs> what it is. I know, I know how you feel. You know, I was like, I've been thinking about the whole UN week, but we'll talk about it in a minute. But it's like, you know, can you imagine New York is so busy at this time? There's no hotel. There's no, you know, it's so busy anyway. Where did you grow up? Did you grow up in Canada or in the United yeah, States? Yeah, I grew up in Vancouver, uh, oh, wow. Canada, on the West Coast, British Columbia. Uh-huh. So, and do you have any siblings? I have a sister, yeah. I know you talk about your mom all the time as well. Yeah, I, I'm probably proud of... Uh, all the women in my life uh but uh she yeah my mom was great inspiration to me my dad in his own way of course and uh and uh my sister you know continues to be so very very lucky to be part of uh, a supportive family yeah absolutely we i was we had a guest this morning and uh she was talking about the family you know how family has helped her actually during this COVID-19 Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the thing, one of the thing I've noticed um, also about you is that you are so kind and, and respectful, and compassionate. And um, we've been to so many events together where, you know, you just sit down and listen to people. Where did you cultivate this? Is the family thing? Where did you cultivate this? Uh, you know, this this kind of like these values. Oh, I'm, you're very kind. I'm sure there are some people who disagree with that assessment of my <laughs> behaviors. I'm sure I've rubbed some people the wrong way over the years, or more than a few. But uh, I try hard to listen 
And I try hard to learn from what other people are saying. I think I'm like an even split introvert extrovert that I, I crave the energy of going out to connect with other people and uh, hear what they're working on and learn from what they're working on. And then at the same time, I, I need to go out and do that in large doses. Then I need to come back home in doses and kind of just reflect and digest and uh, put the pieces together around what I feel like is going on. So I think there's probably certain aspect of when I grew up, uh, Canadianness, uh, you know, people like Lester Pearson, I'm not sure if you would have heard of, he's a national icon in Canada and he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 19. 56, if I remember correctly, for uh, the creation of peacekeeping and UN peacekeeping. There's this notion of trying to listen to people and what they're grappling with that has always uh, appealed to me and trying to find a way to uh, translate what different people are worrying about to give them a common language and a common approach to see if there's, uh, for lack of a better term, a win-win. Uh, and so that, that for some reason, that just seems uh, interesting to me as a proposition to try to figure out. And then I think also it, it does go back to having grown up in Vancouver. I remember very clearly there's a time when I was uh, probably around 18 years old, and Vancouver is a beautiful, beautiful place, and uh, it's got one of the highest qualities of life in the world. And I remember very clearly uh, every year the Economist magazine or someone else would put out a ranking of the best places in the world to live, and Vancouver would often come out on top and everyone would be so proud. And then one year I, I saw that and I said, well, well, that just means that this is the least representative place in the world of what everyone else is dealing with. Cause we've got it so good uh, here, you know, I, and I've grown up here. I don't even know what other people are dealing with because my reality is clearly not the norm. Uh -huh. And so that really, that was kind of an aha moment that triggered me to think like, what does the world look like to everyone else? And that was how I, I think that motivated a lot of my work getting into issues of extreme poverty, where I was like, I, I grew up at the best place in the world. There's so many hundreds of millions and billions of people who grow up in the least advantaged parts of the world. You know, if, if you grow up in a place that has all the advantages and you grow up as a person with so many advantages, you part of, part of your responsibility is to try to think through uh, what people with less advantages might want uh, for their own lives. <laughs> and yeah. so that I, that's kind of the, I guess, uh, the personal motivation history that brought me to a lot of the things that I've done over time. And then there's kind of layer upon layer upon layer on top of that. And did you start thinking about this in your 20s or late? I think, well, I was always interested in the world as a world. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure a lot of that came from my father and he had, my father had kind of lived around the world, had been in the military, was in the Air Force and been a fighter pilot based in Europe and worked in the Middle East after the Yom Kippur War and things and with the UN actually. And so I was, I was aware of the world, but I didn't, I don't think I understood the world, <laughs> but I, I, to the extent one ever does, but I certainly didn't at all. But then it was that, that time kind of when I was in uh, undergraduate and just doing sports a lot growing up and uh i swam and that was my passion was just swimming 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 oh so you are a, you are a swimmer i was yeah oh wow and oh, wow. then uh and then i realized well there are these other things going on that are you know, just i don't know motivating powerful and i was about to be a become a lawyer actually and i was gonna go to law school and uh i had lift i'd stopped swimming and i lifted my head up on the world and it was during the Asia crisis of the late 90s, especially, that uh, it's hard to imagine how, how different the world looked back then. <laughs> but, uh, uh. Uh, you know, the 1990s, fall of 1997, uh, the Asia crisis was in full swing. And we had, you know, colossal uh, economic catastrophes in large countries around Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia. And, you know, I realized that it, the workers uh, were getting the hard, hard hit out of that. And it was, you know, the, the families uh, that were getting the negative deal out of globalization, if you will, and global governance that I found pretty unfair. And then at the time, uh, I, so I say, wow, it's the economists who seem to be doing the stuff that I find most interesting. And 
I never wanted to be an academic, but I wanted to, I knew that what I was reading in the paper wasn't quite what was going on. I needed to understand things a little better than that. So I ended up being very fortunate and able to pivot to go to graduate school in economics. Uh, and I shifted and that was a time when I realized, well, again, it's hard to imagine today, but back then very few people were talking about Africa very yep. regularly in the uh -huh. global conversation. And I said, well, there's this whole continent that no one's even talking about a lot. And uh, what does it look like? So I started to just literally go to Africa to try to start learning about it. What and was the first country you went to Africa? The very first was South Africa, but then Kenya was really the first place I spent a few months in. And then I really started to learn, but I was doing a survey. I got, got involved with a project that was surveying businesses around Africa to see what they were dealing with and what did it look like for them as a research project. And I was kind of managing the survey process across 25 countries with a, another person. And that was where I really started to think through oh, what's going on in Africa. And then that was also the time of the AIDS pandemic. And then uh, I ended up going back I took a break from my PhD and went back to work at Harvard and uh, with a guy named Jeff Sachs. And he was in the middle of launch of this whole global effort around health and development. Yeah. And I remember that. Pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I remember. So, I was young, but I remember. <laughs> yeah. And so then, and this led to the launch of the Global Fund uh, to fight HCV malaria. And I watched up very close uh, the shift from late 2000 when. Uh, there was no international effort to make treatment available. Uh -huh. And we had, by best estimate, 25 million people infected uh, in Africa and about the best estimate was two to three million people dying every year. And people in rich countries could get the treatment, which at the time was only new. It was discovered antiretrovirals in 1996. And then Jeff and Kofi Annan and Paul Farmer and a few other people, they said, well, we should have a global fund to fight AIDS, TB, and malaria. Yeah, and I remember that. Yeah, it. yeah. And then around that time was when um, I was planning to go back to finish my PhD. And then Jeff was, uh, had been working a lot with Kofi Annan and uh, started working on, Jeff had told me every so often, you know, there's this thing, the Millennium Declaration, uh, you should go and read it. And I would go read it. It was this UN document from September 2000 and I'd read it and I would say, this means nothing to me. And then every six months or so, he'd say, you should go look at that again. And, okay, fine. And I'd look at it again. I'm like, I don't really, he said it might turn out to be important. And then in spring of January, 2002, January, or pardon me, in January, 2002, he was made special advisor to Kofi Annan on, on yep. the Millennium Development Goals. I remember, yeah. What and are they, the Millennium Development Goals? Because our girls and boys yeah, don't know about them. What are exactly. they? Exactly. So these goals, so it's, again, mm -hmm. this was out of nowhere. There'd been all these debates. There'd been all these issues of poverty and disease and people being left behind and economic crises in developing countries, protests around the world about globalization going the wrong way. And uh, then these, at uh, the dawn of a new millennium in 2000, what was at the time the largest ever gathering of world leaders got together and said, well, let's set some goals. But what they're actually doing was pulling together in all these different meetings around the world of different international processes, a bunch of goals have been set. And then uh, someone had the clever idea to say, well, let's put them all the biggest goals on the same page. And they set eight goals uh, with a deadline for 2015 and roughly speaking, the goals were to cut extreme poverty in its many forms by half. And so there was a goal, but it was crucially, it wasn't about just like income, it was about people. And so there were goals about things like better health and better education. Uh, mortality. Access, mm -hmm. access to water, exactly. And, uh, you know, grow more food. Or, Malaria, uh, polio, water. all of that. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Exactly. And so... Uh, Jeff then uh, came to me one day and asked me, uh, he said, well, Kofi, as he would call him, Kofi, uh, or the Secretary General asked me if I'd like to uh, run the project on those goals. You know, those goals I kept telling you about. And he said, asked me to direct a project over the next three years uh, to figure out how to achieve them. And there had just been this very successful Commission on Macroeconomics and Health for the World Health Organization that had done all these great things, especially for AIDS, but really for how we thought about investing in health around the world as a condition of economic development. Very timely today uh, in the coronavirus uh, era. 
we can't really have good development unless we get our health situation solved first. And uh, Jeff then came to me and he said, well, Kofi's asked me to lead to direct this project. And I said, oh, great, congratulations. And then he said, and I'd like you to run it. <laughs> oh, okay. So then <laughs> I was 27 years old. And then uh, he, Jeff said, so here's some thoughts how this might work. And I went away and wrote a memo and we started to write down what this project might be and then, and to describe it. And then we ended up moving to New York uh, and I basically moved into the UN in the summer of 2002, and I built a small team, and we got a few hundred people around the world on all these task forces to think about what would it look like to solve each of these problems. And uh, you know, through, thank Kofi Annan was at the time, you know, probably the world's most respected figure. He just oh, he was he was father I never had. <laughs> no, we were all so honored to work under yeah. his leadership and yeah. uh, it was but it was really interesting because it was a project that was advisory to the secretary general so we had space to be creative it wasn't a project of the un it was for the un uh-huh. and that anyway long story short that changed my life that that allowed me to get uh, to know again in the spirit of listening like all these people from all these disciplines and walks of life and sectors people whether they were the water engineers or the agronomists uh, who work with farmers all the time or the the trade specialists who worry about like the rules of the markets and all these people and uh, it gave me a great opportunity to just realize wow everyone has their own language just like uh, in different countries people have different languages well in different professions people use different words the same word sometimes means the same thing in different professions, the same word often means <laughs> totally different things. And so you need to know uh, what they're referring to when they use those words, because there's all sorts of ideas behind them. And so just like math and language and history are all kind of different specialties for the for the kids who are in school listening to this. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of professions that that just continues where the mathematicians uh, speak in certain ways, the economists speak in certain ways, the, uh, the teachers and education specialists speak in certain ways. And not, not only do they have their own language, but they all uh, have their own assumptions. You are almost running a mini UN. <laughs> well, we were. It's funny you say that because it, it was... In many ways, the ver- in my view, I'm probably mm-hmm. biased, but it was in my view, kind of the very best of the UN. It was bringing a an extraordinary Secretary General, oh, and yeah. people were inspired just to show up to be in the same room. Uh, it was a uh, way of pulling people together, whether they worked inside or outside of the UN. And it was a way of trying to bring together all sorts of different types of expertise business, academic, non-governmental, governmental, across all these issues. And that really informed, again, how I came to think about, even today, the sustainable development goals. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was going to ask you, actually. You know, I was I, I was saying to somebody when, when we were doing your research uh, today, I was like, you know, between uh, 2002-2006, because, you know, you know, Jeff and Kofi, very, very busy, but people like you were putting the pieces together. And, and you know, and this was the late Secretary General, you know, someone I, I love almost like my, my father, who mandated you to, you know, recommend an action plan for achieving the development goals. And, and my question to you is, what do you think he would say now uh, if he was alive and if he were in that busy meetings going back and forth, reporting to Jeff, you know, talking to Kofi, what do you think he would say? First, let me just say there were a lot of people in that engine room. <laughs> or there, but there was actually the engine room, when we go back to give credit and future generations, you know, the historians might think about all the people who contributed. There were people... Uh, who are now bold-faced names in all sorts of ways, like, uh, you know, Mark Suzman is now CEO of the Gates Foundation. You know, he was right down the hall from me at the UN, and uh, Mark Malik Brown was running UN Development Program, and, uh, you know, we had people like Amina Mohammed was uh, back in Nigeria. She and I got to know each other originally because she was leading education efforts in Nigeria as kind of an activist uh, engaged in the policy and 
you know, a lot of people joined those conversations skeptical about the Millennium Development Goals. And then a lot of people by the end saw, oh, these can be a very powerful tool. It's one of them, by the way. <laughs> I know, I know. And so that's also part of why I, I all, and it's also part of a journey you and I have gone through together of what does it mean to engage in a constructive way with the skepticism? Some people are professional skeptics where they kind of advance their own careers by being critical. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people are skeptics because they're not convinced and they deserve to be engaged to both so that they have an opportunity to see where the, the goodness lies, but also so they have an opportunity to inform and affect an agenda so that it, it helps rather than an imposition. That's what I like about it, because today what I say to boys and girls is that, you know, some people pave the way for us, you know, you know, of course, you know, you're not taking credit for everything, but I believe in processes, putting processes together, uh, especially if there's a Jeff Sach who's really busy, Kofi Annan out there, all the, all the, of course, leaders in the room, but it takes people who are meticulous, uh, who listens, who, who really follow up on emails and all of that yeah. to make things happen. So uh, my question to you is, you know, how do you find... Well, I can answer your question on Kofi, by the way. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, go I ahead. think, or, I, you know, we call him Kofi. I would, I would never call him Kofi... Uh, I would always, certainly be Mr. Anon back in the day, SG. I, I had the chance, the privilege to sit down with him at the very end of 2015. And uh, after the sustainable development goals had been set and at the very, very end of the Millennium Development Goals, which I have to say was almost a spiritual uh, experience for me just to sit with him and reflect. Hey John, I think those moments, let's just go back a little bit. We talk about humility with our girls, but can you just tell me, how those moments felt like, you oh. know, you being this young man, 28 years old, you know, yeah. running between buildings and offices, creating yeah. things. And then in 2015, you are sitting with Kofi Annan, our father in Africa, somebody we love and admire. How did that feel for you? Well, I can tell you in 2015, it felt pretty uh, special and almost tingly. Uh, like I said, it was spiritual. You know, he was a very, very kind man. And as I'm sure you know. know very, very well. Personally. I know, he was my father. Yeah, yeah. And there are so many people who can speak to his kindness and who will to this day speak to his kindness in person. And he's the type of person who he'd never, he didn't need to remember me. <laughs> you know, I was a, a staffer in effect. And every time I would run into him over the years, you, how are you doing? How's this person might know in common? You know, always, how are you? And always just very warm. He was grateful to your service. I know I, that. I, I think he's just a grateful person. And so that was the warmth of him. And, and on that day, uh, you know, it was during the, the refugee crisis in Europe was at its peak. He was very clear and quite fun about it, actually. Even he had just, I think he just started his Instagram account that week. So he had us help him take some pictures for his first Instagram posts, which is quite funny. But uh, he was very clear on the need for leadership. And he was very clear uh, in his view at the time that the world was lacking adequate leadership. And so people matter and the decisions they take matter. And I think in his last days, he was still pushing for more and better leadership on issues, on so many issues from agriculture in Africa to uh, peace and security. And he new task forces that were getting off the ground that he was always involved with so many issues at once. And had so many demands on his time that he was navigating. But I also go back to when I was, you know, that 27-year-old showing up, and it was very interesting because I heard, and, it, and maybe it goes to what I'd tell my younger self, but also what I would tell any next-generation person is, I went into these meetings, and I remember very, very clearly, when I first would talk to people, and there was a someone who later became a colleague, and they realized uh, they were on the phone with me in these initial meetings. She described it as people would sit down. I have a deep voice. So people thought that I was quite old <laughs> when they heard me. And then uh, they were writing down notes, uh, scribbling furiously. You got a very nice people. voice, by the way, John. Just oh, to you're say. very generous. <laughs> but, but it was funny because she said she was in this meeting and all these people were just scribbling down furiously because I was this person with a deep voice at the end of the line and uh, dialing in from uh, Boston or something. And she said, then I walked into the first meeting a couple weeks later in person in New York, and they realized I was a kid. And they're like, oh, my gosh, why would I listen to this guy? And then uh, they were like, that, that doesn't reconcile. And then I was in a bunch of meetings early on at the UN, 
And I realized very quickly and somewhat to my alarm that these goals, which there's a whole complicated story, they took a while to get crystallized as a set of quote unquote millennium development goals. But I realized that I was often kind of the radical in the room and it felt like a weird dynamic. But then I realized it was because I was typically the only one in the room who thought we were actually supposed to achieve the goals, not just talk about them. That was a very awakening experience for me because there are so many people who have been through their own battles over the years and their own careers and things come and go and they're not really sure how it's going to work. And the millennium goals were in many people's view, destined to fail until they were destined to succeed. It's true. I mean, I, I was honestly, to be honest with you, I was part of the people, especially on the activist side and the community yeah. side. You know, we we definitely knew that it's not gonna it's not gonna work out because I think even in Africa, the messaging. Uh, you know, I, I was in Ghana. I remember talking about the Millennium Development Goals, like showing yeah. the goals. People said, "What are you talking about?" You know, we, even the mayors. Uh, you know, the yeah. you know because we have like you know Ghana, you know, was one of the the city, the millennium cities. We knew it's not it's gonna fail. So, but I'm so happy that you were the radical in the room because I think one of my follow up question on that is: Is it just because you were an economist and you were, you cared about the data and how the process will happen, or what was it in your heart that was making you push for something to happen? Well, I think it was. And this is, you know, the message to my young self and maybe the next generation is I came in without the baggage of like things don't work. I came in with the view of this is what the world's agreed to do. And every country agreed to this. Why would we not follow through to reduce child mortality by two thirds? And that for me was a huge motivating thing. And the AIDS crisis was hugely motivating. Like what? And they were all interwoven why would we not follow through on this commitment? And we have to follow through on these commitments and we have to find a way to do it. And I actually went back years later and even read many of the official documents that were being produced at the time. And they said things like, you know, the countries that have the worst uh, AIDS pandemic are the ones that will uh, do the worst. Uh, So we shouldn't set expectations too high for them. And that turned out to be absolutely the opposite of the case. The AIDS pandemic, not perfectly by any stretch, but through huge efforts of many people, was kind of brought under control. You know, tens of millions of people are now on antiretroviral treatment, and we we barely talk about it. We should talk about it more. But all these things that were impossible became possible. And I think it, it requires what I call intergenerational collaboration. It requires the wisdom of the people who are older and uh, know what they're doing and know how to navigate and can mobilize uh, networks of power. And it requires the young people who have the fresh perspective not to be encumbered by recent uh, history or, or not to be jaded and also have the energy and persistence to push for uh, what needs to be done. And I think if we look at a challenge like climate change today, or in fact, all the sustainable development goals, if you have the perspective that this could be better, this needs to be better, and especially when people have agreed it should be better, <laughs> and we're going to make it better, you know, the energy and the enthusiasm, and, you know, I would not recommend anyone replicate my work hours from my 20s in terms of how many hours a week I uh, worked and slept. It was not good for anyone's health, but it was, uh, you know, there was so much passion. It was such a moment and we had such an extraordinary team and there were a bunch of young people in our secretariat who I was able to bring on board who became amazing leaders in their own right over time. Uh, You know, there are lots of people who brought that energy and passion, but we, you know, if we were doing it just on our own without the elders, if you will, of, you know, people like Kofi, like Mark Malagram, like Jeff, like Amina, uh, Mohammed, you know, we never would have got there. And so it really was this intergenerational uh, collaboration and it really made a, a difference. And so I think that's what we need today. I think the problems we're facing are big and they need young people. They need the voice. And you can be 27 years old, you can be 16 years old with the conviction and the passion and the energy and effort. You can make a huge difference. And to the extent I made any difference, I'll leave to others to judge over the years. But, uh, you know, there's no question that a team of young, and older and in-between people over time made a big difference. And I've even done the math on 
you know, how many extra lives were saved. And, you know, it's 20 to 30 million extra lives were saved. Many reasons uh, drove that, but it's clear that everyone having the same um, reference point and what they were trying to achieve probably helped. But also, you know, progress has been made. You know, we, I remember you and I being at a conference and I think Bill Gates was there and, and, and there was a conference somewhere. And, and for me to actually be here talking to you, progress have been made. Because if you look into, you know, someone who, you know, for me growing up in Senegal, not having access to education and being today on the podcast with you, we must also sometimes respect, the, you know, people who paved the way, but also accept that sometimes, you know, progress has been made. We, we have more to do. And you do talk about this sometime in, in, in your writings and things like that. So my question, one of my questions to you is, are you feeling scared compared to when you were 20 years old? Or do you think now, you know, progress is being made, but it's a bit slow? One of the interesting things of sustainable development goals is there are so many issues, some of which are seeing great progress, some of which are still moving backwards. So things like child mortality, we see incredible ongoing progress in most countries around the world. So the, the number of children who die or the rate at which children die is so much lower than it was when I started in this work. It's, you know, an extraordinary accomplishment of humanity. Uh, and Bill Gates and others of many others have worked, Tedros, uh, leader of the World Health Organization now, many people have worked very hard on that over many, many years. There are other issues like climate change, and I would say issues of the environment and ecosystems, uh, biodiversity that are still going in the wrong direction. Uh, we're increasing our carbon emissions every year around the world, not decreasing. And we need to not just decrease it, we need to basically remove carbon emissions, if you do the math, pretty close to 100% per every unit of economic activity. And so there are some things going pretty well, some going, things going very badly, and there are some things that are kind of a muddle in between. And so the goals are actually, for me, a nice little checklist of what to make sure we're not forgetting about when we're thinking about how the world's doing because in a world of seven and a half billion people, there's a lot of different realities. You know, there's expression that everyone sees their own side of the elephant. Some people, you know, think it's uh, long and, and thin because uh, they're touching the trunk. And some people think it's, you know, big and round because they're touching the, the rib cage. And there's some people who think it's kind of tall and, and like a, a tree because they're touching a leg. And, you know, these are all, all of them are true, but they're all very, very different. And so I am very aware of the different issues I'm very worried right now about breakdowns in cooperation and very worried about the politics and the way many people are talking to each other, including public leaders, about basically cooperation isn't needed is almost an assumption and that we can just get our own way. And even if it's against our neighbors, we can just get our own way. I think that's wrong and I think it's dangerous. And I think you know the coronavirus has shown us, if nothing else, we cannot solve this problem. We couldn't have predicted coronavirus, right? <laughs> in fairness, the infectious disease people have been warning about this for a while, and we've had a few close calls before, but this is the one that it seems to really set us all back in obviously in such a massive global way. But just on the point of cooperation, it's shown that if we don't all cooperate, if we don't get rid of this everywhere, we're not free of it anywhere. And so the call for cooperation couldn't be greater right now. And the need for cooperation between both people and nature couldn't be more vivid. Because what it's shown us is that if even the most microscopic imbalance arises between people and the rest of nature in some part of the world, that can bring all of human society to a halt in a very short amount of time. And so we need to be thinking about people with planet and planet with people in a way that we haven't been thinking about it for many years. You mentioned something about your mother talking to you about the SDGs. Do you mind telling our boys and girls what was the wise advice she gave you? Yeah, so... I had been very active in the negotiations, in, a, in some parts of the negotiations leading up to the Sustainable Development Goals. And for the younger people listening, it was the biggest global conversation the world's ever seen in terms of millions of people uh, sharing their views on what the world's priorities should be. And we didn't even know what it would be called in many ways uh, until 
it became clear they would be known as the sustainable development goals. And we didn't know how many there would be. And there was a whole debate over should there be eight again, just like there were millennium development goals beforehand, or should there be 10 because a couple things need to be added, or uh, should it be 12 because it's an even dozen and all these things. And it turned out there were 17. That was a big debate. Is 17 too many? So that was over the a couple of years, huge conversation among a lot of people with a lot of strong opinions. And on the day that the goals were finally agreed by all 193 countries at the UN, it was Sunday, August the 2nd. And I was sitting at home on a hot Sunday watching the deliberations. And it was very interesting because all the negotiators from all the countries kept saying, we will leave no one behind. That was the common statement, we promise to leave no one behind in this new agenda of goals for the world. And the first goal of the 17, and the first among equals, is the end of extreme poverty by 2030. And so for me, that was very moving because I care a lot about that issue and the most extreme forms of deprivation, and as we've been talking about. And so for the world to actually commit to end it by 2030 was a big deal. And I called my mother that day, who's back in Vancouver, and I mentioned to her, I said, mom, you know, those goals that I've been talking about in the end of extreme poverty, the world agreed to do that today. And she said, oh, that's exciting. I said, yeah, it is. Uh, Then I said, there's only one problem. She said, what's that? And I had in the back of my mind, I had to give three speeches in the next couple of weeks after that. And I was going to have to explain these goals. And so I said, well, these, the problem is these goals, there's 17 of them, and I don't know how to explain them. And she said, 17, that's a great number. And I just paused and I was not persuaded and probably sounded like a teenager. And I was like, okay, mom, tell me why is 17 a great number? Can't wait to hear this one. And she said, the world's complicated. It sounds like they didn't fake it. And then afterwards, she said, you know, if they'd given me some David Letterman style top 10, like the famous talk show host in the US, (laughs) if they gave me some top 10 list, I probably wouldn't have believed them. Huh, that's interesting. And so the next week, I was actually in Geneva, I think you were there. And we were at the World Economic Forum, there's about 500 people in the audience, most of whom you know, hadn't been as close to the conversations as you and I had been. And I, you know, showed the graph, here's extreme poverty going down, here's climate change, carbon emissions going up. And then I asked everyone what they cared about. And everyone spoke to their neighbor, and they ended up saying pretty much every different goal, all 17 goals is what they thought was most important, each of them. By the way, can I just say that day, that day was historic. I still have the photo, I still have the images, and I tell the girls all the time. I tell them. Oh, historic, at least to us, (laughs) (laughs) in our personal histories. But it was so interesting because then I ad-libbed this comment of my mom's just in the moment. I said, you know, I told this quick story. My mom said, the world's complicated. Then we were there for that conference for a few days. And what did everyone come up to me saying for the next few days? They said, I love these goals. It's like your mom said, the world's complicated. And I can see my issue that I care about in there. And that's what changed it for me because it was such a great insight. Again, it's like, if you listen, you can learn a lot from a lot of people working on a lot of different issues. Because there are some people who think water is the most important issue in the world to have access to drinking water. And there are other people who think education is the most important issue in the world. And there are other people who think climate's the most important issue in the world. And there are other people who think oceans is the most important issue in the world. And the reality is they're all correct. And it's a false choice to have to say, should we focus on the oceans over the next 15 years or should we focus on education over the next 15 years? We kind of have to do both. I mean, Mohammed said today, she said that they're all interlinked, actually. A lot of people think the sustainable development goals boil down to what the UN is telling the world to care about. But I think that's the opposite. The goals are about what the world told the UN not to forget about. And those 17 goals are 17 things that we need to continue to pay attention to. And that is the point of these goals is that none of them can be dropped. None of them is optional for the world to succeed. Elizabeth Cousins pointed out to me this coronavirus crisis around the world and and all the related crises intersecting with it has prompted a change in thinking that the sustainable development goals were meant to prompt in the first place. I agree, totally. And that's why these goals are actually still so important because it's what we're talking about as a back-to-basics agenda. We don't want to go back to normal 
because normal wasn't so good, we've learned. Exactly, exactly. We want to go to a better place. And so I've started to call it, we need to take on the great transition to a better place. And the sustainable development goals are a North Star to help guide us there. But they provide a common language for all the things that everyone cares about to make sure we're getting each other on the same page, literally and figuratively, because we need to cooperate in order to get there. We talked about your passion, your drive, your, you know, the, the fact that you're very humble, but maybe because I personally know what you've done behind the scenes and I know how these things work if you don't have the right teams and the right engine, as you said. So thinking back now and with coronavirus, and what would you say to the youngest John? Um, you know, not just what you said earlier, but what would you say to yourself if you have to give some advice to these boys and girls? Probably a few things. First, believe in yourself. There's a lot of ups and downs, and it's always worth following through on what you believe in and continuing to push to make things better. And at the same time, the ups and downs mean when you're up, it'll feel like you're on top of the world, but you got to know that the next moment, things could feel very down. So you got to keep an even keel because I know some people, and I'm sure I've experienced it myself, where it's very easy to you know, be on an upswing and everything's going your way. And especially if you're in a big job, like I was privileged to be when I was young and big jobs are great and people can be very popular because they're in a big job because everyone wants to deal with that person in that job. But the reality is you're just a person in that job and you have to try to do your best with it, but know that, uh, you know, the next day you might have a totally different situation uh, where you might even be without a job. You know, a lot of people these days are falling between jobs and that's uh, stressful. And it doesn't mean that you don't contribute a big thing one day and you might not the next, but even when the down moments come afterwards and you're less popular because you're not in as big a thing, you know, just have to know that it's worth persisting and following what you believe in because when I grew up in sports, there was someone who once said, you know, excellence is a product of increments. And the greatest athletes aren't the ones who just make these giant leaps one day and out of nowhere. The greatest athletes are the ones who find something small every day just to make a teeny bit better. And I think it's the same in all of our lives and professional lives and whether it's policy work or starting a business or, you know, starting a new nonprofit or whatever it is. It really comes down to just finding something every day to try to make things a little bit better uh, in ourselves and in what we're doing with others. And, and that gets to the final point, which is when we're young and full of energy, and that's what youth often bring is fresh energy, you know, it's very easy to think about all we can get done as individuals and all we want to do as individuals. But the truth is, we get pretty much nothing done without our teams and friends. And hopefully, our teams are our friends. But we really need uh, big networks of cooperation, support, friends, family. And that's, it's like you and I, you know, you and I get the chance to work together, but ultimately we're friends. What I say to boys and girls is, you know, we hold each other accountable as, as, as leaders because we check in on each other. And one of the things I was telling the girls when we were doing your research to have you here is that, you know, you helped me a lot in expressing my passion in a way that people can listen. <laughs> you know, we, I think we help ground each other as friends, like you and I individually, but I think it's a more general point that, you know, great friends help ground each other. I don't care if you're having a good day or a bad day. Mm -hmm. Professionally, I care about how you're doing as a person. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I'm so proud of you when you have a great day professionally. And uh, if you're having a bad day professionally, I, I just want to be available for you to help you however I can. And I feel like you're the same way for me. And mm -hmm. so, you know, that's what allows us over time to do any positive things we do is, is these friends who are there for each other over time. And it and it really means that we have to be there for each other as communities and our families matter and our friends matter and our collaborators matter. And, you know, some days one has to be thoughtful about how you pick your fights yep. because there are some fights that are worth fighting no matter what. And then because principles are at stake and then there are other fights that uh, might not be worth fighting because you're really just fighting over uh, details and they're not the core principle and learning the difference is central uh you have really sh saw the birth of the SUGs 
anything else that you sometimes sit down and think about and say, I've been, you know, I'm really proud of this. Well, I'm certainly uh, spending a lot of time focusing on my family lately, Uh, but I'm also, it's an interesting question. I don't have an easy answer jump to mind. I think I'm proud of, quietly proud of all the people I'm able to work with who are each trying to contribute to some dimension of the sustainable development goals. And the fact that there are so many people who might have been skeptical or just wondering or unaware, but who are now feeling this is important. I'm proud to have been part of the community that has tried to support that expansion of effort and interest and alignment. I think I'm also, you know, happy we have this initiative I have been working on with colleagues at Brookings and the Rockefeller Foundation on what we call 17 rooms. Do you mind just telling us about it a little bit more? I love it, actually. Do you mind telling the girls what they are? So the basic idea is when I, I've gone to all these conferences and all these meetings over the years, and so often, you know, people think, oh, those big meetings in the big buildings and all the officials that must be so important what happens there. And of course, it can be very important, but often it's it's not so lively. It's people reading prepared statements rather than having a conversation like we're doing today. Um, it's people uh, thinking about you know what has to happen in the long, long term, uh, or it's people talking about the biggest picture things and not necessarily thinking about the next steps. And I had this idea a few years ago with another colleague of wonderful uh, woman named Margaret Biggs. Uh, we could get people together to think about, you know, what to do next year on each of these goals. Uh, that would be really powerful and make it an annual conversation and even kind of annual working groups on what could we do next year. And then I was talking about this with a colleague, Matthew Bishop, who uh, was at the Rockefeller Foundation at the time. And we said, well, these 17 goals. And I think he was the one who first came up with the idea, well, why don't we could call it I said, if we got everyone together in a separate room under the, in the same conference center, and then they could all meet in coffee breaks. And he said, it's, it's 17 rooms. And I said, that's exactly what it is. And so he said, well, we could do that at the Rockefeller Foundation. I said, convene that. I said, yeah, you could. And so he said, well, why don't we try it this year? And so in 2018, we tried it just very, very quickly on a few weeks' notice, and we said on the eve of the UN General Assembly, all the important conversations at the UN, why don't we get people together informally just to talk about on each of these goals, people who are working on a lot of the policy issues, like what next? And and in, in the first instance, we had people who weren't involved in government, but who were trying to often influence government. People said it was really interesting because they didn't have the chance to all get together. Like the education people go to the education meetings. They don't get to hear what the people uh, focused on uh, water uh, are arguing about or the people focused on climate are worrying about. And so it was a chance for people to start both asking a new question of what next, what could we do next year, and also a way to think about, uh, you know, how we all need to be working on our problems uh, alongside each other and together. And so we tried it again last year with a little more of a kind of preparation. And it was a kind of a hackathon the first time. And then the second time we did it with a bit more preparation. But also in the process, I'd said, you know, this could be just like there's TED and TEDx. Uh-huh. The table for two as well, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And well, the, the second year we said, well, how could you have people uh, do this in their own communities. I said, there's no reason every community center in the world couldn't do this across 17 rooms in every city and every community. And then interestingly, a a couple of universities in Mexico and Spain and in the U.S. said, well, we want to do this on our campus to get all the different people together to think not just about how our departments might work together, but how we might cooperate with the community on common issues. And they said, wow, this is really helpful for us. Uh And so now we're Uh, We just had a big meeting this weekend where we did the first virtual annual meeting of these different policy working focused working groups. And how how was that? How was that for you? Oh, my gosh. It was stressful, I'll be honest, because I'd never organized a virtual summit before. (laughs) <laughs> Zoom. And, uh, but, Usually just at the UN, just meet your friends and we do it yeah. in New York, but now. No. So we did it. We had people from around the world joining all time zones and uh, a lot of different tricks we tried with the Zoom technology, but it seemed to work quite magnificently. And we're, we're kind of pleased that it all somehow managed to, to stick together. And so now we're thinking about, you know, the most important thing is, of course, what this 
generates and what are the actions that it could help contribute. Mm. But also, mm. you know, Georgia Tech, our friend Angel Cabrera at Georgia Tech, uh, they're doing a 17 rooms campus initiative in next month. And uh, Carnegie Mellon uh, did one in the spring. They did a, their own 17. I mean, we would love to do 17 rooms in Kakuma Refugee Camp with the girls in Kenya. Exactly. Absolutely. We exactly. would love to do that. And so we're trying to, we want over the coming months uh, to uh, make some toolkits so that mm-hmm. people can try their own version of this. So just with some simple um, guidelines, but around here's what it means to do this. And if you, if uh, the girls and you wanted to do it, we'd be only too thrilled. because We will love it. We will love it. We love it to becomes, do that. You know, it, going back to that same point, everyone thinks something is most important, but every, everyone's view on what's most important is a little bit different. But even when we got everyone together to talk about what they thought was most important, there are a few things that seem to be common, like uh, a lot of places are worried about, you know, all the response money happening around the COVID crisis right now. And how do we know that the, all these trillions of dollars are going to the people and places that need them the most? And how do we have what people are calling a just recovery? And then similarly, you know, a lot of people are worried about digital IDs because if you want to you know, target, say, social protection and, and family protection in the poorest parts of the world. And ref- refugees ID, counting number of refugees as well. Exactly. So, yeah. so we need to have good mm-hmm. digital platforms with clear rules, uh, you know, so the data is managed properly, it's not abused, but we also can get people, you know, access to basic services, especially if we can't send people out into communities because of the crisis. And so, you know, the whole notion of like digital ID platforms, uh, great for I am the code, <laughs> is huge. So there are some of these common threads that have come up and we're literally in the middle this week of trying to figure out, you know, how to pull it all together based on what everyone's talking about. But again, it gives me hope going back to earlier in our conversation that some of these problems, they seem really hard. And when I talk to people about the sustainable development goals, they're often seen as too big, too complicated, too UN, too far away, not accessible. Yeah. And what, and what do I do with that? That's the mm-hmm. UN, not me. And so what ultimately I think we're doing is changing the word goal and replacing it with room. I mean, I love that, John, because you know why? It's because not only you understand the process, but also I think Matthew is just like awesome guy. He knows, you know, he's an amazing writer. And I think what is really, what is really beautiful about the 17 rooms, our girls can actually choose, uh, you know, a room actually in, in Africa is dignity, you know? Uh, it's like being in a room somewhere is private, is di- you know, is dignifying. So I will say that the girls in Kakuma Refugee Camp, you know, we have over 200,000 refugees in Kakuma, that are 200,000. So I will say that if we bring the 17 rooms in, in refugee camps, each of the each of the you know girls and and the communities can actually choose their own room. You know, it's, I think it's a really beautiful idea. I love it. And then and the key thing is it makes it or one of the key things is that it makes it uh, actionable. So it's not big way off at the UN. It's about what the goals ultimately actually come down to, which is people getting together in rooms or in communities or in under a tree, whatever is easiest, uh, and talking about well, what could we do? Find a common purpose. What could yeah, we do next? Yeah. What would make a difference mm-hmm. and how can I we agree. cooperate to do something next? Because that's what these goals ultimately come down to. It's about everyone figuring out how to cooperate to do something next. I mean, we, the, I think the 17 rooms, yeah, the 17 rooms, not only we demystifying it, but also it's bringing a common purpose. And also the cultural component, I mean, which I'm now when I'm listening, you know, you speak, I'm hearing about the, the cultural component. I would say for me, what is really attracting about this is the, the rooms, the community, the fact that yeah. everybody can sit down and have a conversation and I think that's a beautiful idea. You know, at, at I Am The Code, our mission is to teach 1 million women and girls to learn how to code. And we actually, you know, aligned ourselves with the UN agenda. So we are one of the rooms, you know. <laughs> one of the rooms is just to go, you know, one of the rooms is to really get this 1 million women and girls to, you know, be digitally uh, literate. So I think my question to you is, why do you think technology will, uh, will play a role on the SDGs? Well, what a great question. I think there are a lot of problems that need technology breakthroughs in order to just get the rate of progress we need to see. We're actually uh, working on a book project right now to describe all sorts of technology breakthroughs that are promising over the next 10 years that might help bend the curve towards a new place. So just like the internet itself is a new technology and Wireless communications is a new technology, and you know mobile phones are new; <laughs> they're pretty recent uh, in the span of history. 
know, the, they make so many new opportunities available. Well, we need breakthroughs in uh, low carbon energy systems. We need breakthroughs in battery storage. We need breakthroughs in how we grow food and the technology. We need over time probably to replace fertilizer because uh, the benefits uh, are probably less than the costs in a lot of places. And I love fertilizer, but you know, the, if we can find better ways to get the same result with less environmental cost, you know, we need to be focusing on those things. And so we know, for example, with disease control right now and the pandemic, we need better technology for everything from testing for the virus to treating the virus to a vaccine. A vaccine for the virus is a new technology. And so all of these things require better and even for learning and for girls in school and boys in school too, of course, you know, one of the great risks right now is with so many hundreds of millions of kids, you know, more than a billion kids, not literally in the physical school, uh, but learning at home. And of course, so many kids can't learn at home or if they're in the camp, they might or might not have access to any education to begin with. You know, we need to make sure that there are better ways not just for them to get to a class, but to learn from wherever they are. This is why I like the rooms, because one of the room, in my opinion, is the goal number nine. So I exactly. see it as a room, just analogy. For example, my girls need connectivity, yeah. they need infrastructure, they need content. It's sometimes it's not just like you said. For me, you know, I sit on the board of the Web Foundation. Yeah. I, I think internet is a human right. But my girls don't have access to anything. They're not going to go to school until 2021. Yeah. So I think for me, if I was going to address, uh, you know, the, the 17 rooms, I will urgently use goal number nine as one of our room yep. and we just make so much noise so i love the concept of the 17 rooms really love it uh and, and i just love it i just it makes so much sense well let's work on it together let's figure out how to make it happen i, I love it i love it makes so much sense in my in my brain so we talked about everything um so i've got three more questions what is family for you well family's everything is what pops into my head you know my family is everything to me but in a certain sense, everything is my family. You know, you're part of my family in a broad sense of how I think about the world because we're all interconnected and we're all in the same circle of people we care about. So there's my blood relatives who I, you know, care deeply about and they're always the top priority. But then there's, you know, all the people whom I consider part of my extended family. And uh, I'm privileged to be part of a, a broad network of people who just as human beings cares about each other. And that to me is uh, you know, central. What is humanity for you? Humanity is both a noun and a mindset, I guess. So there's humanity, which references all the people around the world. And then there's humanity, which is a way of being mindful about the world. I think much more certainly than I did when I was younger growing up about all the forms of humanity as people, as individuals that are not treated with humanity as a spirit. And so I think part of what I care about is humanity as dignity in everyone getting their chance to be equal participants in the world of humanity as we know it. And then last point before I let you go, why do we need to make the future more human? I'm not sure we do. I think we need the future to be more integrated with the world, as we've talked about. I do think we need a better balance between humans and nature. That's like the first thing that popped into my mind. Humanity as a disposition and a mindset of mindfulness. I, of course, agree. We need the world to be more humanized and enlightened over time as a cooperative spirit of shared purpose. It doesn't mean we end disagreement. We should never end disagreement. I think disagreement is, can be a very constructive thing in every part of life, but it does mean we should find ways to listen, learn, agree, disagree, and move forward in a way that uh, supports each other rather than cuts down each other. That requires us being in better harmony with nature and listening to nature 
but it also requires, as we've talked about here, a, a better approach to listening to each other. You want to have like maybe just 30 seconds to talk to the girls. So just you talking from your heart. Well, hello, I am the Code Keepers. I'm so thrilled to be with you. Each and every one of you inspires me every day. Uh, you are the code that uh, shows us the way uh, to make things better, uh, to tackle adversity, to work together, and to persist uh, to a better world. So I'm so grateful to all of you for what you're doing. I'm so grateful to each of you for what you help us learn about the world and the way it can be better. And I just want to congratulate you for each step you're taking to bring us to a place that's better for all of humanity. Thank you. John Macat, uh, thank you so much for coming to the I Am The Code podcast. I am so proud, proud, proud to have you. <laughs> what an honor to join. You are leading the way and we're all uh, in your slipstream, just trying to do what we can to follow your leadership. Progress is possible. If I'm here today, interviewing John Makato, it means that nothing is impossible in life. But progress is also possible. You have to speak up and stand up for what is right. Trust yourself. Go and do what is right for you and for society. One of the things I've learned this week is that the world doesn't change, but people change it. Never be afraid of making a change and a difference. Go and do it, because if you don't, nothing will change. You have been listening to the I Am The Code podcast. I'm your host, uh, Mariam Jam. Come back again soon for another I Am The Code episode. You have the time to reinvent yourself, just like John Makato, Miriam Sidibe, Uli Matasar, so many people that came to our podcast that I'm so grateful to have and listen to them, share their wisdom, their creativity, their love, and their kindness. I want to thank my creative team because without them, I wouldn't be able to do this. Thank you so much for being here and goodbye.